1: put me that the Word of God says it I believe it. And
0: that's the way it is. And now here is Janet Mefford. Paul, like Jesus, shocked the guardians of Israel's law by his insistence on treating the law as a means to an end and not as an end in itself, by his refusal to let pious people seek security before God in their own piety, by his breaking down barriers in the name of the God who justifies the ungodly, and by his proclamation of a message of good news for the outsider. So said biblical scholar F.F. Bruce about the apostle Paul, who was first known, of course, as Saul of Tarsus. Now, it is almost impossible to overstate Paul's importance in the founding of the church, the formation of the New Testament, and also the shaping of our theology as evangelicals regarding the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sanctification, and so much more. Primarily, Paul was about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He not only preached it and explained it thoroughly in his epistles, but he was profoundly transformed himself, as we know, by that same gospel and by faith in his risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Who was Paul, though? What do we need to know about him and his background, his family, and his writings, as well as his influence on the church. This is a very important subject for all of us as Christians to grasp, and we're going to be exploring at this hour with Dr. Guy Waters. Dr. Waters is professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, the author of several books, including How Jesus Runs the Church, and today we're going to be discussing with him a great DVD series that he did for Ligonier Ministries. It is called The Life and Theology of Paul, and Dr. Waters, it's a real pleasure to have You here. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Janet.
0: Thank you. Now, I'm just curious to ask you right off the bat, where would you rank the Apostle Paul among the most important Christians who have ever lived?
1: Well, I think on anyone's ranking, you, you would have to put him at the top. And I, I, I would immediately qualify that in that Paul is... Uh, An extraordinary Christian man. And for instance, as he writes the Corinthians, as he writes the Philippians, he points them to his own teaching and example as models for the Christian life, though he stresses, follow me as I follow Christ. With that said, it's important to, to remember that Paul is an apostle, and that is a unique office. He was entrusted with other apostles by Jesus to lay the foundation of the church. And what Paul gives us is not mere uh, Christian uh a good sense in his letters, reflections about Jesus, reflections about living for Jesus. But he is giving us the mind of Christ as to what we're to believe and how we're to live. So provided we remember that Paul stands in a category unto himself, he remains all the same, uh, one who is a model for us in living the Christian life.
0: Right, the chief of sinners. And it's interesting because when you talk about the word apostle, you know, we hear men today claiming to be apostles, but this was a very unique designation that was, you know, given to Paul, given to the other disciples as eyewitnesses of Christ. Talk a little bit about the significance of that designation, apostle. Apostle.
1: Yes, Janet, and you're absolutely right. A a perusal of any church directory or phone book will turn up many contemporary claimants to the title apostle, Mm -hmm. and however one is to dispose of that, I think on the New Testament's own terms, the apostle has a very technical meaning. An apostle was someone who was designated by Jesus as a witness of Jesus. And Paul stresses that what qualified him to be an apostle, as this qualified other people to be apostles, was that he had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And having seen him raised from the dead, was appointed by Jesus directly to be an eyewitness to him. And what that means is that when Paul speaks, he speaks with the very authority of Jesus Christ. And that gives great assurance to Christians that when we're reading his letters, we're getting nothing less than the words of Jesus, so that we don't have to doubt or wonder, where does Jesus fit in all of this, because Paul is the apostle of Jesus.
0: A great point, especially because you will sometimes hear controversy about whether or not Jesus and Paul's theology conflicted. But that's that's why that's so significant, that he is in these epistles, in these writings that we have in our New Testament, that he penned, this is the Word of God ever as much as the red letters of the Gospels are the Word of God.
1: Absolutely, Janet. And in in our own day, we we could walk through a number of issues where the Apostle Paul comes under fire. And one option that is not left open to Christians is to say, well, Paul is a man of the first century, and these uh, judgments that we see in his letters reflect the prejudices and the blind spots of the first century Jewish man. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul was a first century person, no question, but Paul wrote by inspiration of the Spirit. He wrote as an apostle of Jesus, and so his words carry the very authority of Jesus Christ. And if if we're going to be consistent, then we'll extend the red letters to Paul's letters and to the rest of the Bible exactly. while we're at it.
0: Yeah, no, such a good point. The whole Bible ought to be read. And I agree. Now, this is interesting because we refer to him as the Apostle Paul. Before that, though, he was Saul of Tarsus. And I wonder how many Christians have really gone through with a fine-tooth comb the book of Acts to kind of trace everything we should know about Saul. I know that you talk about this in your DVD lectures, but Mm -hmm. what do we know about Saul as a persecutor of Christians and his prior life to coming into contact with the risen Christ?
1: Well, it's interesting, Janet. Paul does not set out to give us a comprehensive biography, but he does at a number of points give us. Some very suggestive statements about his past life that helps us to get a picture of the man that Saul was before he came to know Christ. And when we put those pieces together from the Acts and from his own letters, uh, what we see is a man who was raised as a Jew and was very proud of his Jewish heritage. He doesn't stop being a Jew when he becomes a Christian, but he stops taking pride in being a Jew. And he received the very best training uh, that a person could receive within Judaism. He was raised in Tarsus, which is in what is today southeastern Turkey. He would have been exposed not only to Judaism, but also to broader Greco-Roman culture. He, he was not raised uh, in a ghetto, but he was exposed to all the currents, political and cultural and artistic, that were sweeping through that city. It was a university city. His parents sent him to Jerusalem to study under Rabbi Gamaliel, who was one of uh, the most noted Pharisaical teachers uh, of the day. So he received the very best theological education, uh, training in the Scripture. I'm persuaded as we read his letters that Paul had committed uh, the Scriptures of the Old Testament to memory. He can quote them from Hebrew and from Greek at ease. He would have learned a, a wide body of uh, interpretation and in debates about the interpretation of Scripture. But the thing that Paul points to most of all in his life in Judaism, and and he does it with a Uh, a great deal of openness and with a great deal of shame, was that he was a zealous persecutor Mm -hmm. of Christians. Uh, He was incensed at the claims that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and he took it upon himself with the blessing of the Jerusalem authorities uh, to travel far and wide Uh, in an evangelical zeal to destroy the church. That's what he tells the Galatians, I was trying to destroy the church. And it was in the midst of one such expedition, as, as we know from our studies in the New Testament, on the Damascus Road, that Jesus literally stopped him in his tracks and changed him from the inside out.
0: Right. And it was his zeal, so he thought, for God, that Mm -hmm. he thought he was doing God's will by persecuting Christians initially.
1: That's exactly right. And that's what Jesus had told his disciples in John's Gospel. He said they will think that they are doing service to God even as they persecute you.
0: Isn't that interesting? Hang on, we're going to come back on Janet Mufford today. We're talking about the life and theology of Paul with Dr. Guy Waters. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away.
1: And I found out I was pregnant.
0: I was devastated. I had no idea what to do. When a young mom faces an unplanned pregnancy, she's confused and scared. Society tells her that a baby is not a life and offers termination as the best solution. Preborn centers shine light into the darkness by offering young moms in crisis hope, love, and life, and an ultrasound to meet their pre-born baby.
1: As soon as I get there, I felt welcome. They gave me the first look at my baby by providing a free ultrasound.
0: Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are taxed deductible eight five five four zero two twenty two twenty nine, 402 or there's a pre-born banner to click at Janetmeffer.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty Health Share, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as 199 dollars per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855 565 Six five twenty five sixty one. That's eight five 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 six five twenty five sixty one. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org dot org slash jmt.
1: You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet.
0: We are back on Janet Mefford today talking about the life and theology of the Apostle Paul, a seminal figure in Christianity for multiple reasons, not the least of which was his role as a preacher to the Gentiles, his role in delineating the gospel and explaining and outlining so much foundational theology for us to understand even down into our own day. And we're talking it over with Dr. Guy Waters, who has a wonderful DVD series out on the life and theology of Paul for Ligonier Ministries. So, Dr. Waters, we were talking about the fact before we went to the break that here was Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church, but his motivation was he thought he was doing the will of God.
1: That's exactly right. And in his letter to the Philippians, he gives us a a window into his uh, motivation and the goal of his pursuits. He was trying to establish righteousness. Uh, He thought that by doing all the things that Uh, God expected of him that he would be able to merit the favor of God. And part of that package was his zealous persecution of the church. Uh, So for Paul, this was uh, not a political act merely, not a cultural act merely, but this was a deeply religious act in uh, persecuting the church.
0: Exactly. So he goes from Jerusalem, then heading to Damascus, on the road to Damascus. This is when his life changes forever. And he sees Christ who says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And goes blind. This this is just a seminal, incredible event in the life of the Apostle Paul right then and there on the road to Damascus.
1: It was. And there is no way that one can account for this naturalistically. This this is a supernatural event and Paul is uh, struck blind. He is, has to be led into town. He is uh, met by a disciple, Ananias, whom Jesus sends uh, to Saul. Uh, he is baptized, and uh, in being baptized, uh, Paul calls on the name of the Lord at the same time, and uh, through faith his sins are forgiven. Mm. And Paul then is escorted to meet Christians— and you could well understand, they're, they're hesitant, uh, is, is this guy uh, a double agent, what's he doing here? But eventually Paul begins to preach Christ as fearlessly and zealously as he had persecuted Christ. Right. So what we see uh, Jesus doing in the life of Paul is, in converting Paul, taking all of his natural gifts and abilities, and uh, by grace, transforming Paul to put Paul in the service of Christ and using uh, his gifts, his experiences, his abilities not to destroy the church, but to build up up the church.
0: That's right. And one of the things you mentioned in your series, which I think is very interesting, is the fact that so many of us believe that he became Paul— after he became a Christian, and that was why he suddenly took on the name Paul. But you offer a different explanation, uh, having to do with the roots of the name Paul and the roots of the name Saul. What what is the truth about the Saul to Paul switchover?
1: Well, that's a that's a good question, Janet. Uh, Saul, of course, is a Jewish name. He was descended from the tribe of Benjamin, as he tells the Philippians, and. the the great son of the tribe of Benjamin was King Saul. And so it's understandable that he would have received that name. In Acts chapter 13, when uh, Saul and Barnabas leave Palestine, uh, modern Israel, and they go to the island of Cyprus, they undertake a ministry in earnest to Gentiles, really for the first time. And Luke comments that it's at that point that Saul comes to be known as Paul, and from that point on, we know him as Paul. Yes. Well, well Paul is a, a Roman name, and again, remember Paul's background. He, he was uh, born and raised a Jew, but he was not born and raised in isolation from the world around him. Um, ancients, as people today, have multiple names, and so... What Saul is doing when he realizes that it is now time for him to begin ministering to the Gentiles, as Jesus had called him to minister to the Gentiles, begins using one of his other given names, uh, which is Paul, and uh, would have given him a certain uh, level of uh, freedom and and movement and interaction uh, among non-Jews that he might not otherwise have had.
0: That's really interesting. What of the connection between Paul's conversion to Christ, his sudden encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus and his, you know, obviously bowing to the Lordship of Christ right then and there, and his calling? Because those came, you know, very quickly together. Not only was he, uh, you know, trusting in the Messiah Jesus and being transformed, but he was also being called to this enormous task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. What should we know about this connection between his conversion and his calling?
1: Well, we need to keep those two together. And one of the reasons we need to keep those two things together is that in the last generation, there's been a very influential movement in the academic study of Paul that has said, Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but questions or even denies that he was converted on the Damascus Road. Oh, wow. Happily, the Scripture doesn't force us to make that choice. It's a both-and, not an either-or. And one of the important things in this discussion is that it helps us to revisit the Scripture and to see, in fact, yes, uh, we, we say that Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, not because this is some tradition that's been handed down through the Church, but because that is the testimony of the Scripture. And it also tells us that those whom Christ converts, he, place, he calls to serve him in various places. Sure. Uh, we're, we're not left to uh, cut out on our own, but Jesus has tasks for those whom he brings to life.
0: That's such a weird position to take. I had not heard that before, this, this idea that he could be called but not converted. What reason would God have to call him if he wasn't converted? What are they basing that upon?
1: I think part of the concern is uh, to, to say that uh, Paul did not convert from Judaism to Christianity, from one religion to another. And I think on the face of it, when you look at Paul's own testimony, though, though Paul continues to be a Jewish man and says as much he has clearly broken with his past. Uh, he, he tells the Galatians that he, he no longer observes the ancestral traditions that uh, dominated and defined his life. Paul is, is a man of the Scripture. He doesn't forsake the Scripture, but he does forsake all the traditions uh, that have grown up in Judaism around the Scripture and even in contradiction to the Scripture. And it's clear that Paul has undergone a a fundamental transformation. He had been serving uh, self. He had been seeking to establish his own righteousness uh, to merit a record before God. And part of the good news of the gospel uh, that Paul preaches and that Paul experienced is that that striving comes to an end That righteousness, which he sought for but did not have, is given to him and every Christian through faith in Jesus. It's a righteousness that Jesus has won for his people. And standing on that foundation, clothed in that righteousness, we then respond to the grace of God by earnest service to him. Exactly. for Paul, that that is nothing less than conversion.
0: Oh, of course. Well, you think, why was he in such trouble with the Jewish leaders, and why was he persecuted all the time if he was really still in that same camp? It doesn't make any sense, nor does his opposing Peter to his face over the Judaizers. That wouldn't have made any sense either if he weren't converted.
1: Well, that's exactly right. Uh, and you, you raise an excellent point that certainly his enemies, many of whom were former friends and colleagues in Judaism, perceived that a radical change had happened in Paul and a radical change in allegiance had transpired in Paul's life in ministry. They did not take a live and let live approach. Uh, Once Paul went to the other side, uh, Paul then became a target of persecution. And that, I think, is telling.
0: It sure is. Now, when we get into Paul's theology, this is where it really gets interesting and important because he has such a huge influence on all of us, as I've mentioned, even down into our own day. But you talk about Paul's perspective on the two ages, for example, that both the life that is here is important and also the life that is to come. Why is that an important distinction to talk about the two ages or or the importance of the two ages to Paul?
1: Well, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Uh, Paul is insistent, of course, that the gospel comes to people as individual people. No one can repent and believe for you. That is laid upon you as an obligation. That said, Paul also recognizes that we live in a world created by God that is not as it should be. And that's where the, Paul's terminology of this age, or sometimes he'll call it the world, or sometimes he'll call it the flesh, yes. comes into play. Uh, we, we live uh, in a world that is uh, under the influence of the evil one, of Satan, as he writes the Ephesians. Uh, we see that the default to uh, human instinct and behavior is sin, And that is rooted in our nature. We're not basically good people who trip up now and then, but we have evil hearts, and we're inclined to sin, and we cannot do that which is uh, well-pleasing in God's sight on our own, and of course we live in a world that's populated full of people, uh, just like ourselves. And uh, this this world, the human race, apart from the grace of God, is, is not going to be uh, worshiping God, is not going to be receptive of his people, uh, of his word.
0: Absolutely. Hang on, Dr. Waters, we do need to go to another break. We'll be coming back, Dr. Guy Waters, discussing the life and theology of Paul on Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Great to have you along and great to be talking with Dr. Guy Waters about the life and theology of Paul. And we were discussing a little bit about the two ages, Dr. Waters, before we had to go to that last break. This idea that we have the present age and Paul will speak of the present age, but he also talks about the age to come. I wanted to let you finish your point there as we had to go to a quick break.
1: Oh, no, thank you, Janet. Uh, really, the, the bottom line is this, that because of who we are, And because of the the, the way things are, there are no resources in ourselves, in the law, in the world, to rescue us out of our plight and predicament. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, We deserve only judgment in, in this world and the life to come from God. And there's nothing that we can do in our own power to help. And that's where the gospel comes in. Uh, The age to come refers to that new order that Jesus has brought into being by his death and resurrection and brought into being in history, specifically. And Paul says that when, when a person becomes a Christian, they are introduced into this new order. They are united to Jesus Christ. They are indwelt by his spirit. And they share in the life and the blessing and the peace and the joy and the glory that Jesus has won for them. And that defines this new order. And we don't experience all of this at one time. We've just begun to experience it. And that's part of our hope is that the fullness of it awaits us and we can be sure that it awaits us. But it tells us that Everything connected with our salvation is a gift, and it's something that Jesus has won for us, has accomplished for us, and grants us by his Spirit. So that salvation is from start to finish by grace. It is a gift, but that gives us the very foundation of assurance. We live in an uncertain world, but... The, the gift of grace is not uncertain because it is founded on the work of the Son of God.
0: Yes, you think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, obviously, and so many other passages where Paul mm. points this out. Now, another important passage, the thesis statement, really, I think you call it, of Romans, which is doctrinal gold through all the way through, is this important passage. This was the uh, very important verse that Luther lacked, uh, kind of tacked onto when he was uh, doing his work in the, at the Reformation. But But here it is, Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So here is the doctrine of justification. But what's interesting is that you have right after that, all the way through portions of chapter three of the book of Romans, such a, a an emphasis on sin. And this is a very important point, I think, that he is proclaiming the gospel, but then he goes into great detail about how fallen man is. What do you make of the significance of the way that Romans is constructed in that way?
1: Well, I think it's it's crucial to understanding the gospel. Uh, Paul does not launch straight away into a discussion of the glories of the imputed righteousness of Christ in justification. That does await. But what he's telling us is that if we're going to appreciate that and sense a need for it, then we have to understand our own unrighteousness, because the righteousness that is given in the gospel is for those who are unrighteous. And if you don't sense a need for it, you won't want it. You won't seek it. Yes. And so that's what Paul strives to do, is to show that the entirety of the human race, Jesus accepted, is enslaved to sin and is guilty of sin. And he's clear in defining what sin is. Sin is not defined in terms of the preferences of a particular culture or a particularly old set of rules that have been handed down But Paul goes straight to the character of God. It's God's own character that defines sin. And so that means that sin is both objectively defined and it's defined in light of a person, God, not some abstract rule. So that helps us to see the gravity of sin, and it also prepares us to see that uh, in sheer grace, the God whom we have offended and offend through sin is the same God who provided his own son so that the unrighteous could become righteous. That's
0: right. And as you mentioned, he doesn't really get into detail about justification by faith alone until chapter 3, but he does go into detail about the Jew is condemned by the law, and there is Mm -hmm. none who understands, there's none righteous, not even one. He leaves no ambiguity, does he, at all about how condemned we are, and especially when he talks to the Jews in particular, the law is not going to save you.
1: That's right. And he is is speaking here of the Jews, the covenant people of God, and he singles them out, I think, for for one main reason, that is you you look across the landscape of the human race, if there were to be one hope for humanity, would it not lie in God's covenant people Mm -hmm. who have all of these privileges? They have the law, they have the sacrifices— Uh, They have the adoption and, and on and on. But Paul says that Jews no less than others sin and are unrighteous and stand guilty before God. So if humanity at its highest cannot achieve the righteousness that God requires, then there's no hope for any of us on our own. Right.
0: Yes, that's it. So when he does get to the doctrine of justification, this is the gospel. This is not just about Christ dying and and shedding his blood so that we can be forgiven for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. For a lot of Christians, that's a $10 word they can't quite define if they were put on the spot. But what would you say Paul's definition of justification is? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, the word comes from the law court. And so when when we think of justification, we should think of ourselves as standing in God's courtroom. He is the judge, and we are the defendant, and we are guilty, and we have no plea. And what we deserve is to be condemned and punished. But that's not what God does, and that's where the word justification comes in. What God does is to pronounce us righteous, And that's what it means to be justified, is to be pronounced righteous. Now that raises the question, how could God, who is righteous, declare a sinner to be righteous uh, without compromising his own righteousness and integrity as a judge? Well, the answer that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 3 is that God pronounces us righteous on the basis of the gift of righteousness that is ours, that he has given us. And that gift is the obedience and the death of his son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus rendered the obedience to the law that we did not give, and Jesus died the death that we deserved. He did not deserve it, but he willingly died that atoning, sacrificial, wrath-averting death for us. And so that righteousness is given to us. The technical word is it is imputed to us. It's not worked into us gradually, but it is reckoned or accounted to us, and we receive it through faith, which God gives to us as well. So the whole arrangement testifies to the grace and goodness of God and the gospel. And once that verdict is passed, is declared, God never takes it back. And we carry that verdict with us through the grave and into eternity.
0: Right. This alien righteousness. I know uh, this is the, the phrase many of us will remember, the alien righteousness of mm-hmm. Christ that becomes ours through this real exchange. Our sin is imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us, and it's all by faith
1: alone. That's right. And, and Paul stresses at the end that justification not only exalts the mercy and goodness of God, but it also exalts the justice of God. Mm. He is the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Exactly right. Let's
0: pick up on that in a second. I'm sorry, we need to go to another break. Dr. Guy Waters with us talking about the life and theology of Paul. We will return on Janet Meffer today after this. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty Health Share, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855 560 Six five twenty five sixty one. That's eight five 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 six five twenty five sixty one. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is a story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely
1: from the abortion the first time that I visited.
0: When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat eight out of ten times, she'll choose life. I know
1: God will not have me to just throw at my blessings like that.
0: Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you please join Preborn in providing love and support for young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. Just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY, that's 855-402-2229, 855-402-BABY, or there's a pre-born banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today,
1: and now here's Janet.
0: Boy, we could really talk for hours on end about the life and theology of the Apostle Paul, but a great DVD series out, The Life and Theology of Paul from Ligonier Ministries by Dr. Guy Waters, who has been kind enough to join us this hour and talk theology and talk about the life of the great apostle. And you made a great point before we went to that break that when we think of justification, oftentimes we think, oh, God is so merciful and he's so gracious. And of course he is. But you make the point that justification also exalts God's justice. How so?
1: Well, justification exalts God's justice because when Jesus died on the cross for us, he bore our sins and he paid the penalty that was due to us. And when Jesus dies and God accepts that death on behalf of his people, then justice has been served and the penalty has been paid and the ledger is cleared and, and not only are, are we brought out of the negative column, but we're given Christ's own obedience, his meritorious obedience. So we are placed in the positive column. Yes. And what that helps the Christians to see is that this this work of God in ensuring that all the demands of his law are met and satisfied. All the demands of his justice are satisfied that God has done this. And so we have every reason to know that God is our loving father, that he went to such lengths to send his own son to meet the standard of his own justice. And while we, of course, are concerned not to offend our Heavenly Father. We want to please our Heavenly Father in all things by keeping uh, the commands of His law. Uh, We don't dread the uh, penalty of justice that laid on us when we were unbelievers, because that penalty has been paid.
0: Ah, such good news. I never get tired of hearing the gospel. And and also, when you continue on through Romans, and there's so much meat there that we're not going to have time to get into in any depth, but for example, when, when you say about uh, Paul and the Christian life and, and how the church ought to be, we are now slaves to righteousness. Once we were slaves to sin, now we are slaves to righteousness. He rejects the idea of this cheap grace or this antinomian Idea that you can just, oh, I'm forgiven, so I can just sin that grace may abound. He rejects that. And he's also honest about our struggle with sin. There's a lot of personality, I would say, especially when you get to Romans 7, about Paul and his own struggles.
1: That's right. And there has been a lot of discussion and debate among Christians about Romans 7. But I'm persuaded that in the latter part of Romans 7, Paul is giving us a a frank, honest account of his own Christian life. He, he is speaking in the present tense, and he is speaking as a Christian, uh, as one who struggles against sin that remains. He he tells us that what what it is that defines the Christian is that they, in Romans 6, they have been brought into to union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and that Sin no longer enslaves them. They are enslaved to righteousness. But that doesn't mean that sin has been eradicated from every part of our being. It doesn't mean that sin does not remain and that we don't have to struggle against sin and fight against sin and that there won't be losses and setbacks. And that grieves Paul because at the core of his being, he doesn't want to sin. He wants to please God. But he finds himself continuing to sin, and that drives him in those opening verses of Romans 8 straight back to the cross.
0: It sure does. I I also love to go to Acts and look at the details of the life Paul lived after his conversion and his calling to Jesus Christ. For example, one of the ones that stands out for me, and it probably does for you too, is here he was preaching, I believe it was in Lystra in, in chapter 14 of the book of Acts, and he's stoned, and they drag him out of the city and they think he's dead, and then he perks up, and what does he do? He goes out and eventually comes back to Lister. And I said, that just, it just blows me away. How many of us would go into a hostile city, preach the gospel... And then get stoned and then say, I think I'll go back. But he had such a love for the church and such a love for Jesus that he endured all of this for Christ. And what a contrast with how much persecution he actually brought upon the church of Jesus Christ initially. What a contrast. It's incredible.
1: Absolutely. And what's so striking is that Paul is no longer laboring to achieve a righteousness. He's (laughs) been given that righteousness. And that does not give Paul the luxury of setting back and settling into a life of ease. But he wants to serve the Savior. He wants to tell others about the Savior. And not even a stoning uh, that almost kills him is going to deter him from telling others the good news about Christ.
0: Right. And the, and the how many times did he endure the, the 39 lashes? Five times or something like that? Yes. Yeah. So he, he certainly paid the price for his faith in Christ. But here he went on all the missionary journeys, planted all these churches, wrote to the churches, cared for the churches. And when you look at Paul, just a, a kind of an overview of the man himself, the Christian, the apostle, what do you make of the witness that he bears to us today just in his own life, apart from what he wrote, his doctrine, but but who he was?
1: Well, Janet, I think two things come to the fore. Uh, one is that the Christian life is a life of suffering. And Paul testifies to that in so many places. We, we are tempted to think when, when things begin to go wrong in our Christian lives, that, that something's wrong. The train is off the rails. Mm-hmm. And Paul wants us to know that our suffering is appointed by our sovereign Heavenly Father, and he points it for a good purpose, uh, for the glory of his Son and to make us more like Jesus Christ. But that suffering is an expected part of the Christian life, and it it can assume any number of forms. That if our ideal is a trouble-free, suffering-free Christian life, Paul says, I, I have news for you. That's, that's not the life we've been called to live. No. But, but I think the other word that characterizes Paul's Christian life is service. And Paul gave himself, he expended himself for Jesus. And, and the way preeminently that Paul served Jesus was to serve his church. Paul did not know of any existence as a Christian lived in isolation from other believers. He deeply loved his fellow Christians. Uh, he served them. He poured his life into them. And I think that's a good word for us today. We There are a lot of forces that pull us apart from the church, that pull us apart from other believers. And Paul is saying, no, it's not even that the church is a nice add-on to the Christian life, but our life in the church, using our gifts in the church, benefiting from the gifts of others, uh, growing under the means of grace, all of these are part of the Christian life that Jesus would have us to live.
0: Absolutely. And he gave us so so much content in the Word of God about the future, which you also focus on in your DVD series. And Romans 8.18 pops to mind where he says, I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. This also is a message of hope. I meet a lot of depressed Christians right now because, of the state of our country and the threats all around the world that face us. But Paul would keep us focused, wouldn't he, on the age to come in the midst of this present age?
1: Absolutely. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, that is the beginning of the resurrection harvest, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So we have no doubt that Our bodies will be raised and brought into full conformity to Christ's resurrection body at the last day. That the church will be presented to him as a spotless bride. And that the world as we now see it, in in all of its uh, weakness, uh, as it lies uh, in, in bondage, under the curse, we're going to see new heavens and new earth uh, we're going to see the world renewed by Jesus when He returns so we have we have no cause to despair. We are a people of hope we We're not going to to see that hope realized uh, in the here and now through through politics or other endeavors though though we serve Christ in those arenas but we we labor in hope knowing that Jesus will accomplish everything that he said he's going to accomplish.
0: That's absolutely right. Well, it is a wonderful DVD series. You can get a lot more on the life and theology of Paul through this DVD series put out by Dr. Guy Waters through Ligonier Ministries. Dr. Waters, it was so great to have you here. You did a great job on this series. I really enjoyed it, and it was wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Janet.
0: My pleasure. And thank you for listening today to us here on Janet Mefford Today. It's always great to hear from you. Our website is JanetMefford.com. God bless you.